I think this is working. Okay. Glory to God. Uh, first of all, Caleb, can you read the Bible for me? Absolutely. Thank you very much. Uh, turn in your Bibles with me to the second book of Thessalonians, and we'll start at the fourth verse. Um, I found this text to be very interesting, just because I first thought when I was going to be teaching this, I was just going to be teaching you about how not to be a bum. But as I uh, began to study through this text, I found that it's a lot deeper than that, that actually it seems that God wants us to uh, know about His authority, the power of the Word of God, uh, the power of Jesus Christ. And so it's kind of been a mind-blowing text to me. And so if we'll start with verse 4, Caleb, and read it loud and powerful like you got the Holy Ghost. What? No, I said chapter 3. Verse 4. Four. Right. 4 through 6. Uh, this section that we're entering into, we call it, when we examine um, arguments, it's called the paraenesis, which means an exhortation that you um, use in order to keep people on course to the morals that they've already held to. And it's very interesting that in this paraenesis, as opposed to the first one, in First uh, Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, uh, the command section starts with, we urge and ask you, brothers, that you do this. And as Paul breaks into this section, he just says, I command you. And it seems to be because the commands that he gave in the previous book were kind of ignored. It reminds me of my mom, who was a very nice, she is a very nice person. My dad was always the disciplinarian in our household. And my mom would ask, and could you please do this for me, baby? And could you please do that for me, baby? And we kind of wouldn't do it. And so a few months later, she'd just snap. And she'd be like, well, since you can't do it, what I ask you when, you're, when I'm kind to you, I just have to go off on you now. And so Paul, in this second book, is kind of going off on the Thessalonians because they seem to be neglecting what he's already said. It's very interesting, and I, we, uh, I was supposed to start at chat, uh, verse rather 6, but I started at verse 4 because Paul begins to develop this command language in verse 4 where he says, I know I'm confident that you'll do these things that I command in the Lord. And you, we see, I think, four times in this section of Thessalonians the term command come up and also the term obey. It's a very militant language that Paul uses. He uh, it seems to be saying that when I give a command, I intend for you to obey it. And when I was reading and studying this, I was reminded of something that I, um, I went to a Seder years ago, and I had a friend who was a very liberal Jew, not a Messianic Jew or anything, just a Jew Jew. And we were talking about um, the Ten Commandments, and he was saying, well, the actual Hebrew of the Ten Commandments, it's not uh, commandments, they're more uh, it means the ten words, and it's more of the sayings of God, or the catchphrases of God. And me, being me, had to disagree, because uh, to my knowledge, you don't get stoned for catchphrases. And neither are you cast out of your land and sent into exile for several years, when they're just the catchphrases of God, 
but I wonder how many times we view the commands in Scripture, and even though we might know in our hearing that that's wrong and that's not true, that we treat the commands of God like they're catchphrases or like God is suggesting something to us and not giving us a clear command. Paul wants to give us the force of his command. We're going to break this up into a few pieces. First, we're going to look at the language that Paul uses in order to stress the authority of the commands that he gives concerning what he calls walking disorderly. And first of all, he uses um, what we call the plural of um, authority. He refers to himself as we, uh, abundance of times in this section. And the we is to give uh, weight of witness and weight of authority. I sometimes, if you know me, I will refer to myself as we, and I'll say I'm referring to my most august self and my plenitude of apostolic authority. And that is what Paul is doing here. He's either referring to either himself, Silvanus, and Timothy, or perhaps he's referring to the Lord, who he is invoking in this section, or just the authority that he has as an apostle. And so, stressing this term, we, which he uses 12 times in this section, he is saying, uh, listen to what I say. There is a plurality of weight that we have here. The second thing that I find very interesting in verse 6, he says, we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is very interesting because he uses this full, it's kind of the most expanded way that you can uh, kind of style the name of Jesus. And it's this full breadth of his, of his name. It's only used 28 times in all the 1,058 times that the name of Jesus is used in the New Testament. So it shows that it's kind of a uh, precious use, that you just don't throw this around as any kind of way you want to. And we see that it's used with only like the kind of the beginning of epistles or when the writers are talking about something that's a pretty heavy doctrine. And he pulls on this, and I'll write this on the board. He talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, which is kurios, and then Jesus, and then Christ. And the term kurios, or Christos, you may get Greek with it. Uh, kurios is connected with the, um, the Hebrew term Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. And so what Paul is doing is he's pulling on the authority of Jesus Christ as God here, the full breadth of all of the attributes and the authority that comes with God. As Paul says in the book of Colossians, the Pleiromates uh, Theotitas, the fullness of the Godhead which dwells in Jesus. He's calling on him as the power of God and the wisdom of God, like 1 Corinthians 1, or the uh, effulgence of God's glory, like Hebrews, the first chapter. And so he's, um, he's bringing to bear the weight of God's divine glory, Christ's divine glory, as well as his uh, human glory. Christ is not a... Um, uh, a divine title. It's actually a title of humanity and exaltation. So he's pulling on Christ as uh, in his trifold office, so prophet, priest, and king, who reveals to us his will by his word and spirit, who offers up his own body as a sacrifice for a propitiation for our sins, and who also rules over us and defends us from our enemies. He's calling on all of these things, and so he's bringing what we call theologically, it's a fancy word, it's one of my favorite words, he's bringing together what we call the theanthropic authority of Christ. He's bringing to bear Christ, Christ's authority as the God-man. And so he is, which is 
pretty intense when you're thinking, well, he's just talking about not working. So why does Paul uh, bring to bear this authority? And I think he wants to state explicitly what we should understand implicitly about the Word of God whenever we read it, that there is a divine, powerful, potent element of Christ speaking in the Word that we need not ignore, that we need to make sure that we are uh, taking notice of, and that we need to be ready to listen and attend to everything we say, even if we think that it's not super important. Because when God speaks, it's pretty powerful. And so could you continue reading, uh, go through 6... To 15, if you please. 15. Mm-hmm. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to you. It was not because we did not have the right but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this commandment. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. First of all, I think we need to identify what uh, Paul is talking about. Um, this, In my version, it says people who walk disorderly. It's kind of different in all of your versions, probably. The Greek word behind it, which I think will help us, is the word ataktois. Ataktois. And it's rendered a few different ways. That's supposed to be an S. But it's rendered a few different ways in various translations. In the ESV, it's written as idleness, people who walk in idleness. In the NET, I think it's written as people who are um, undisciplined. And then in the King James and the uh, American Standard, it's uh, disorderly. And in the 1599... What am I doing? Um, in 1599 Geneva version of the Bible, it is uh, people who walk um, inordinately. I think I was trying to mix those two words together, so that's weird. But um, I found, as I was kind of doing my study and looking through all of the um, commentaries, is that the, there's really no room in the semantic domain which... If you look into a dictionary and you see like definition one, two, three, four, that's called the semantic domain. And that's all of the possible definitions or meanings that a word can have in any given context. Within the semantic domain of this Greek word here, you don't have the concept of idleness or um, undisciplinedness. It's just Paul is using a word for being generally disorderly. And so what people do, what the translators did to get these other words is that they uh, kind of got the feel of what Paul was saying in this section, and then they kind of imbued that back into the Greek word to give a coherence to the entirety of the text, but the Greek word doesn't necessarily allow for that. And there are a few uh, different views as to what this disorderly group of people were. It was first you just have stumped down lazy folk. What my mama and I would call a person with a vagabond spirit just don't want to work don't want to keep a jab, you know, the kind of person who um, will 
go buy flowers for their girlfriend with their girlfriend's credit card kind of people. Um, this, those kind of people, that's one of the, uh, the theories that are behind it. You also have this group of people who are, um, they theorize that they've been influenced by the Greek-Roman philosophy where you have a dualism of flesh and spirit and the flesh is bad and the spirit is good and so you have these people who are all studied in uh, theology and Christology and pneumatology and eschatology and all these things and they think that they're so spiritual and they're spending all their time doing all these wonderful deep things that they don't think that they have to work. And so they expect all the people who aren't as spiritual to kind of feed their habit of being spiritual. And so that's one of the theories or uh, speculations that they put out. There's also this idea that the people weren't working because it was um, they were kind of disoriented by eschatological panic. They thought since the end was either coming or because uh, the end had... Um, wait, the end had... Was, what did I say? The end was already coming, uh, that they believe it passed, or because they believe it was imminent. They just said, well, I don't have to work because Jesus is coming at any moment, or I don't have to work because Jesus already came, and so I'm just going to give up and wait until he comes and gets me. And so it's kind of like, if you know the history of Jehovah's Witnesses, um, they prophesied like four times that Jesus was coming back in 1914, 1918, um, and then uh, 19 something else, and then uh, 1974, and Jesus obviously did not come back in any of these times, but every time these years came, people would just quit their jobs and just wait for Jesus to steal them all the way to heaven, and uh, it was very unfortunate because they were just put out after Jesus did not come back, and this is kind of the idea that they have for these other people, why they might be idle, and then you have a fourth group of people who are people who are kind of like the super spiritual people. They're people who may have gone out and evangelized, but um, since they were going about Thessalonica and Macedonia, they were so busy being uh, evangelists that they made it, but didn't feel the need to have a job. And so just like the others, they were expecting others to kind of feed into their ministry because they were too good for manual labor. And Paul kind of did... In this section, he kind of does like what my grandma did when she would have us clean out her tobacco spit cup. When we would be like, that's just nasty, Grandma. And Grandma would be, you ain't too good. Now get in that kitchen and clean out my spit cup. You see? <laughs> so this is kind of Paul perhaps bringing these people down on their level. It's almost a reverse, um, greater, lesser to greater paradigm in rabbinical teaching where instead of saying there's a lesser thing that and then he blows it up he's saying if I'm an apostle then I can work and I can do all of these things and I'm more spiritual than all of you I have more missions than all of you I speak in more tongues than all of you I do all of these things more than you I'm the most spiritual person that you'll ever meet so if I can do if I can make tents then you have nothing to talk about I actually think that despite all of these theories and we went through all of that, and I thought it's interesting to give you the background, I think that Paul is actually not concerned so much as to the reason why these people are idle. He actually just wants them to stop being idle. I think, he, I think probably he has a certain audience in mind, but he leaves the term broad so that if anyone has some sort of different reason why they're not doing their job, 
then they don't have an excuse. It's just like in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh and he doesn't give us the, the, uh, the specific terms of the thorn. He doesn't tell us what the thorn is per se, but he, um, he leaves it open so that we can recognize that God's grace is sufficient for us when we have a thorn in our flesh. Likewise, he's saying it doesn't matter what the reason for your disorderly conduct is. It doesn't matter why you're not working. Get a jab. Get some gainful employment so that you can be a help to those who are in need. And so the way he stresses this is by pointing out that um, the Thessalonians are disorderly four times over if they refuse to keep his commandments. Firstly, he uh, firstly he says that he left a tradition for them to follow. Tradition. Okay, um, he left a tradition for them to follow. I would love to talk about kind of um, the eisegesis that certain groups like Roman Catholics or Orthodox imbue into the word tradition, where it's some sort of separate um, canon of inspiration that's separate from the scriptures. But I don't have time for all that, unfortunately. So if you want to talk about that later, I'd love to talk about it with you because it's fascinating. But basically, the traditions are these oral teachings that are passed down from Jesus through the apostles that Paul promulgates to the Thessalonians, and he says, I left this tradition, and you're not keeping this tradition, so you need to get it together. Secondly, he, uses, he goes into a lengthy detail about his example. Why can't I... Jesus? Help your holy servant. Lord, have mercy. He talks about his example. And I think it's very interesting that he, um, when he talks about his example... He says, where is this in my Bible? Dun, 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 yes, he says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not uh, disorderly among you. And that word there is actually not how you ought to follow us. In the Greek, it's actually you must follow us. Paul is very strong there. And he's saying our example is... Um, it's mandatory. It's, when we read the book of Acts, we're not just reading the book of Acts to say, oh, honey, Paul was powerful, and he was just filled with the Holy Ghost, and Peter, he was just so bold, and Stephen, he just stood for the Lord, honey, and I just wish I could be like Stephen. And that's not why the book of Acts was written. The book of Acts was to show that the same spirit that was at work in Paul and Peter and Stephen and and Silas and Barnabas is the same spirit that's at work in you if you're a believer in Christ. And so you are to imitate them as they worked with the Holy Spirit because you have power and wisdom and knowledge to do all of the will of God and walk fully pleasing to Him. And so Paul says that his example is a must follow, that we can walk in the Spirit like he did, not just because he's a great person in his own right, but because he was awesomely yielded to the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, he gives just a plain old-fashioned command. He told you that if you don't work, you don't eat. And it seems like it's not just a command that he gave them, but it's a proverb that was probably circulating already in Asia. And it's kind of common knowledge. Like, if you're not going to work, you're not going to sap up all, all my food. You don't pay bills here. You don't live here. And so what Paul is saying is, if you don't work, you don't eat. It's pretty plain and simple. And if you can just turn away from his plain commands, then there's something wrong. And the last thing is he gives special weight 
to his own epistle. And I say he gives special weight to his epistle or his letter um, because um, at the beginning, when he talks about the tradition that he left, he says simply, stay aloof or stay away from brothers who don't walk according to the traditions that I've left you. But when he talks about his letter, words, he says in verse 13, but as for you, brother, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, first he says, note this person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet, Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. He kind of ups the ante when he sends this epistle and even after they get expressed command, Uh, they still would ignore this. And this is showing the power of the written word, I believe. It is only scripture that 1 Timothy tells us that is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and righteousness and exhortation, etc., etc., that the man of God might be entire, fully furnished for every good work. And there's nothing, yeah, there's nothing apart from the scriptures that are to equip us for everything pertaining unto life and godliness. And so Paul says, if you can discard what the scriptures say, it's like what Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and the voice of a stranger they shall not follow. And if you don't hear him, that means you ain't his sheep. And so we have to be careful to listen to what God has spoken to us in the scriptures. How much time do I get? I feel like I've just been rushing. Oh, perfect. Okay. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thirdly, um, we are, where was I? So epistle. So thirdly, he goes in from his paraenesis, which is his exhortation uh, section, and he goes into a benediction. So I'll erase all this. And I think that I think that this is pretty powerful because Paul, in light of kind of the disorder that we experience, that the church is experiencing because perhaps because of these people who aren't walking according to his teaching, uh, there seems to be factions and frustration in the church. And so he prays for three things. So, Caleb, could you read verse 16 and uh, just 16 for me? Now may the Lord of peace himself. Yes. You're going to have to read louder. Now may the Lord of peace himself be peace at all times and every way. The Lord be with you all. So, the first two things that he prays for is peace... And he prays for the presence of Christ, which I find is very interesting. One of the commentators that I was reading says that he's pulling on the language from Numbers 6.26, which is the latter half of the Aaronic blessing, which is where uh, Aaron was supposed to bless the children of Israel. And he said, um, uh, let's see, the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you his peace. Now, the term uh, face in Hebrew literature, especially when it deals with the Lord, has to do with the presence of God. And so just like Paul says in this part, um, the Lord be with you all, it's this um, conferral of the presence of God with his people. And then he uses the same um, Greek word for give, which is one of the commentaries said it was an archaic word that he was using that harkens back to Numbers 6.26, and that Jesus is standing as the Lord, who gives peace, as Yahweh who gives peace. And I think it's wonderful that he not only says that he wants God to give us his peace, but his presence, because it's not just a God is standing aloof in the heavens somewhere apart from us, and we don't have um, him. I think it's wonderful that Paul 
prays and expects that the Lord will be present with his people as long as we keep according to his word. And, um, yeah, it's a powerful time. Could you continue at 17 and 18? Got it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So the last thing he prays for the Thessalonians is, it's very typical in his letters, it's praying that the grace of God be with them. I'll write this down since I'm writing stuff down. That the grace of the Lord be with them. And the grace is not just, a lot of people will render grace as the unmerited favor of God, but the grace of God is actually the working of God in the lives of his people according to his loving kindness. And so he is saying that, uh, he's praying that God would work in us to empower us to do everything that Paul has already commanded us to do. Um, one thing that I see kind of the overview in this text is that Paul is pushing forward the authority that he has as an apostle um, in giving an example. And one thing I really took away from this is that if you're not willing to hear the voice of God, if you're not willing to submit to the word of the Lord, you're not in obedience to the Lord of the word. And so he says, if you can't obey Christ in a um, in the simplest things, because this is a very simple matter, like not taking advantage of people, making sure that you're useful in, um, in your workplace or useful in your church. Um, if you can't obey him in the simplest of matters, it really shows a heart problem. And I think that Paul is really pushing forth the authority that he has as an apostle and the authority of the word of God um, to show that the people of God attend to the word of God. And so, one thing that I want to ask you before we depart, I hope you've been enlightened by my rant, but um, there's this section in doo, 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 verse 14 that says, If anyone does not obey our, the word of our epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. It's the same language that he uses in, uh, may, I may have said this, the same language that he uses in 1 Corinthians 6. And he, uh, it's to keep completely away from them, to separate yourself from them. And I want to ask you, uh, do we really like kick people out of the church uh, when they don't do the will of God? And is there anything from this passage that would help us in how we help the poor? Um, Scott will answer these questions. And uh, should we break for like two minutes, five minutes? Yeah, two to five minutes. Well, two to five minutes. And then Scott will be back to teach us the ways of the Lord. Thanks. I did. I was like, yeah, I was like, I got to be orderly, submit to authority. Yeah. Great job. Praise God. Really, really, really. Okay, so all we have to announce is second Friday worship, and um, photo next Thursday. Yes. Okay, I thought about saying something along the lines of you're good. If you're going home and you know that that might be a hard thing for you, text one of us so that we can be praying for you. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Oh, thank you. Bless you. Bless you, and may the Lord keep you. Cause His face to shine on your face.
Make your way, find a seat. Yes, I do. Thursdays from now. Two Thursdays from now. Two Thursdays from now. Um, we will be taking the annual table picture. Yeah, Woo! it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, we'll, we'll have food and games out at 6.30 here. So two weeks from today, be here at 6.30. Uh, we'll hang out for an hour, and the photo will take place at 7.30. So you for sure want to be here at like 7.15. We're going to start lining everybody up on the porch to get the picture shot at 7.30. So, two Thursdays from now. Last thing, uh, a lot of people are getting ready to scatter uh, for spring break. And um, if you're going home and you know that that might be hard for you or you're going somewhere where you know um, you could just use a little bit of extra prayer, uh, please do not hesitate to text um, a table leader, to text Scott, 
uh, to text Rachel or Drew. Um, we would love to be praying for you as you transition out of um, Stillwater for a while. So, that being said, Scott will take it away. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, so, this, uh, this past week, actually, Kelsey uh, told me about this, and I got to read quite a bit about it, but the Pope, I guess, made an announcement that it's basically kind of made this statement and, and made it official, I think, at some level, you know, because when he makes announcements and claims, it, like, it's more than just a, an important thing. It becomes almost like Scripture at some level, but we won't get into that. Uh, but he, he made the statement that, that it's always right to help the poor. It's always, it's always right to give to someone when they ask, when, to someone in need. And it just kind of got me thinking about all the times when I've pulled up to a stop sign. You guys know what I'm talking about? Pull up to a stop sign or a stoplight at a busy intersection. There's somebody holding a sign. There's somebody walking up and down the aisle and, and wanting um, some help, uh, wanting some financial help. Or, or someone approaches you at a gas station and needs help. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've, that's happened to me. And I'm caught in this spot going, uh... Think I want to help you, but I'm not sure. I don't know. What do you guys do? What do you? What do you? What, what goes through your head? What What do you think about? Do you think, yeah, I should I should help? They look like they're in need, or do you think, oh no, they're going to use it, they're going to use that money for something bad? I'm not going to give them any money. You know, the the Pope was kind of the point he was making was, you know, you should just give and trust God with it, and not worry about what they're going to do with it. And I think that's kind of one way to approach it. I don't think it's actually a bad I don't think it's a bad way to approach it. There's other, there's other thoughts of, um, well, actually there's a book called um, When Helping Hurts. And it kind of teaches this idea that actually that can be contributing to something that could be actually damaging to not just the person that you're giving to, but maybe a whole system, maybe a whole, maybe a whole other group of people that you don't know that, that giving in this way could, could be hurting. And yet... What, what if, like, what if not giving to someone in need causes them to suffer and somehow we are held accountable? We had an opportunity to give and we didn't give. We chose not to give out of the generosity that God's given us. And we chose to hold on to what God had given us because we weren't sure how they're going to use it. And, you know, we only want to give a gift to somebody if, they, if we know they're going to do it, use it for the right reasons. Um, and so, you know, I don't, some of you maybe have flashbacks to Drew talking about grace and this gift and how it's, how it's undeserved that we get it. And so, so how do we wrestle with all that? And, and so we have this, this comment or this statement by Paul that he who does not work does not eat. What about? So does that, does that include like homeless people and, and people on the street and people that aren't working and asking for jobs and I think the answer is no. I think the answer is no. Paul is not referring to them. Um, and Anthony did a good job describing this word idol in, in the Greek and what it means and how Paul is using it. And um, I, I really don't believe he's talking about the poor um, that uh, can't take care of themselves or are or, or, or hurting in some way. Um, he's talking about somebody who's like being a burden to the church. He's talking about somebody who is, who is burdening the church. And actually, because of their 
selfishness, they're causing other families to, um, to suffer, to struggle. It's, it's, it's causing problems in the church. It's hurting the church. So that's, that's what he's describing. He's not talking about helping the poor, but I think it still brings up kind of a good question. And it actually brought up in my mind, like, what, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about helping the poor? And so I, I went and, you know, you go to Bible Gateway, you type in the word poor and, and see how many times it comes up. And it, and it said 178 times in the Bible. And I started reading through a bunch of them. And you'd be amazed at how much the Bible talks about what to do with the poor. And so, you know, just, so I want to say just a, a few quick things. I, what I want to get to later is, is I think, more important than, than this, but I think this is important, and I think it's something that we all wrestle with at some level. What do I do, how do in that moment? What do I, how do I think about this? So I want to challenge you to do a couple things. I'm not going to give you all this, uh, all, the, all the verses that I found that I thought were pertinent. I, I would love to just read them all. But I, I, want, to, I want to challenge you to do this, to, to Google the word or actually... Go to a, like a Bible search program, Bible Gateway is one of them, and, and type in the word poor and just start reading the verses that, that, that talk about it. And, and what you'll notice is, like in the Old Testament, you'll notice verses where, where, where God is commanding the people, actually in Leviticus, um, commanding the people that whenever they, they uh, sow a field, to sow all the way to the edge, but whenever they go to collect and to reap the harvest, don't reap to the edge. Let, let all that just kind of hang over the edge. Um, let, let the poor people that come along, let them have that. And then whenever you, whenever you gather the crop, um, don't like come and pick up every ounce and everything that's fallen on the ground. Leave all of that. Just gather and leave some things laying around so that the poor can have those things. And if they don't eat it, then let the animals eat that. So why is God commanding silly things like, don't reap the harvest all the way to the edge. Let the poor have it. What, what, God's, what, what you'll notice in, in the heart of God is this constant theme. Be generous with what I've given to you. Be generous with what I've given to you. What I've given to you is a gift. Why would you hold it and keep it and not give it to anybody else? I've given out of, out of an overflow of, of love and generosity. Why wouldn't you want to do the same. And so you see over and over and over, you see the heart of God towards the poor and the sojourner, as it's called. And he reminds the people of God, listen, you were sojourners. You, you were walking in the wilderness. You were a people in need. So remember that and, and bless those who, who are the same. And then you get to a book of Proverbs. And Proverbs has kind of a wide variety of description about what to do with the poor, and I want to read a couple of them. Um, the, the, uh, Proverbs actually talks about the sluggard, what to do with the sluggard, which may be, may be a, an application to the, this, this word in, in, in 2 Thessalonians, the idol. Um, it could be a description of somebody who's just lazy and isn't doing anything. It might be. But it talks about the sluggard. It talks about... Um, uh, those, uh, it talks about discerning the rich and the poor. And he says, um, one pretends to be rich and ha- yet has nothing, and other pretends to be poor yet has great wealth. And, and so there's a discernment issue that's, that's needed to determine. So in, in Proverbs, he never, it's not like poor is bad and, and rich is good, or rich is bad and poor is good. 
It's, it's always a matter of, a matter of righteousness and wickedness, or, or the wise and the unwise. And so it takes discernment to figure out, is this a person that's um, poor out of, out of bad circumstances and, and so therefore needs generosity? Is this a, he also talks about poor as a consequence to seeking after pleasure. He says, those who love pleasure will find poverty. So he doesn't always talk about the poor as being a good thing. And yet he talks about, um, he says things like, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Um, he says, Whoever gives to the poor will not, will not want, but he who hides his eyes will, will get many a curse. Um, he says, Whoever wanders from, from the way of good sense will rest in the assembly of the dead, but whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. And he who loves wine and oil will not be rich. So he, there's just, just this wide variety of what to do. And then you get to the New Testament, and you see the, the way Jesus talked to people and touched people that no one talked to or touched. And the way he dealt with people, and the way he looked people on. In fact, if you read in, in these articles about the Pope, what he's, what he's wanting people to get at is not just, he doesn't want people to just hand out money. What he wants them to do is, to, to, give what, to give what they're asking, but to look them in the eye and to acknowledge them as a human being and to let them know that you care for them and to let them know that, that what their needs matter. And so I, I love that heart that he's wanting people to have for those who are asking in need. Um, I just think it's complicated. You get into the New Testament and the way the church dealt with the poor. In 1 Corinthians, Paul um, so this is, this is something that we, we don't really get to experience. Because of, because of the nature of, of the way it was, um, it wasn't socially advantageous to be a Christian. And so, so a lot of times it was people cut off, and so they would gather together, and, and there would be a mixture of rich and poor. We see that in 1 Corinthians. We see that in James. And, and Paul, at one time in 1 Corinthians, is kind of going after the rich people, saying, listen, you guys don't work, all, you don't labor all day long. You come early with all your food, and you start eating. And by the time those who are laboring all day long get there, the food's all gone. And you're dishonoring this thing, this meal that you're supposed to be sharing together. And he's, he's really going after the rich people for not waiting on those who are less fortunate and those who are having to work longer hours. And, and so imagine if... You, you went to church every, every Sunday and sitting next to you were doctors and lawyers and homeless people and, and it was, they were all there for the same reason. We're all there just worshiping the Lord and taking care of each other. And, and that's not really what we experience. And so it's just kind of an interesting thing. Paul, there seems to be this idea, we take care of one another. Whatever, if you have a need, I need to do whatever I can to help meet it. And there's an assumption that those who have abundance should help those who lack. And um, he says, but like in our text today, but those who are capable and those who are just burdening, we need to confront that and deal with that. And that's a sin issue. But, so to maybe answer this, how do we, how do we help? Um, and what do I do with a person that comes up and asks for me, asks money for me? Um, I actually have an answer but it's not an easy one. I, I think the answer is to discern what the Lord's wanting to do. Um, 
And so I think the easiest and the laziest way to deal with it is to always give, that's one way, or to always say no, that's the other way. The, the easiest and the laziest way to deal with this is to always say, oh, somebody's asking? Sure, here's money. Take, you, you, you obviously must have a need or you wouldn't be asking. I'll just give it away. That takes no discernment to do that. It also takes no discernment to just say no. Oh, no, you, you're going to use that for cigarettes and alcohol and I ain't going to participate in that. No, I don't care. You're all, you're all lying. No, I'm not going to give. That doesn't take any discernment to figure. And so... You know, one of the things that my wife and I have done is we, we have committed to give to several different things. And so we, 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 we pray about this and we, we seek the Lord. And we say, okay, what do you want us to give to? And we, we have a plan and we give on a regular basis. But then we also recognize that there are things that come up that we need to be ready to be generous with and we need to connect with. And I, she trusts me and I trust her that if, She's out and I'm out and I sense there's a need. I need to be willing to do it. And she needs to trust that I'm feeling led to do this and, and vice versa. But again, it takes discernment. I would, I would say don't have a rule about it. Just follow Jesus' spirit in it. So that's that. And I thought that was kind of helpful um, as I was walking through that. I go, man, that seems harsh. In fact, some of these words that Paul says, like keep away, let him not eat, um, have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Seems? Okay. Now, I want you to be honest with me. How many of you think this idea of excommunicating someone from the church sounds mean? Okay. I'm being honest. Raise your hand. Okay. I think most of you, I think Anthony's probably the only one in here that it doesn't sound mean to. <laughs> See, um, I, I think it, I think I think you you'd be fooling yourself if you didn't have a little bit of a man. That just seems ah, that just seems weird. And so I want to talk a little bit about this idea of church discipline and 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 why Paul seems to have such strong language for this person. And and he mentioned a couple of other places where uh, maybe even stronger language. In fact, I know for sure stronger language. In 1 Corinthians 5. Um, so, but, but I want to I help you see the first century church compared to, to ours. Okay? To see maybe why we struggle with this so much. Okay? So first century church, Paul's day, um, would have been the only source of Christian fellowship. And, and, and churches would have been few and far between. Right? So you're in Ephesus, there's one church huge city, one church. Now you and I, when we go to church on Sunday, or whenever you go to church, maybe it's Saturday night, maybe it's Sunday, we, we drive past at least 20 to 30 churches. I've heard there's anywhere from 100 in the surrounding area, but for, for number's sake, we'll say we drive past 20 to 30 churches that we could go to, to get to the church we're going to, right? So this idea of church discipline seems kind of weird. So you don't want me to go to this one, so I'll just go to the one right down the street. You don't want me to come there, I'll go somewhere else. What's the, what's the difference? What, what's the big deal? Uh, the other thing is, it, the, there was a social cost to being associated with a Christian community. Like I said, um, that's not necessarily the case here. So because of this cost that they had in being a part of this Christian community, there was a motivation to be a part of it. 
they, they, were, they were motivated at some level because it cost them greatly to be a part of it. Most likely, there was disowning from their families to be a part of this Christian community. You accept Jesus, you throw away your Judaism at some level, or, or, you, or you know, the Greeks considered Christians atheists because they only worship one God instead of the pantheon of gods. And so, you know, you have all these different issues, and, and so the great cost for a Christian to join the church. And so they're motivated to stay a part of this fellowship. And that's not really the case for us. Like I said, we, we can go to any church we want to. In fact, a lot of times, church is just a, church is just a, a, a sermon that I listen to in a building with other people. And it's not really a family that I'm a part of and that I'm committed to, that, that are relying on me, that I'm relying on. And so there's a difference in, in what's going on. Uh, we make church so very easy to be a part of, and so easy that you can just kind of show up and never really open up your heart and your life to anyone and leave. The other thing is they lived in a shame-based culture that we don't live in anymore. And so think about how Paul uses um, shame. Do you notice that? That line, that they may feel shame, that they may be shamed. And so Paul, whether you like it or not, this is what I love about Paul, Paul, whether you like it or not, is willing to use even shame to, as, as, as leverage for repentance. And, 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 and that doesn't fly here. In fact, we would never, ever want anyone to feel shame about anything. It's kind of our culture is we don't want anybody to feel bad about anything. We, we try so hard to get people to not feel bad. Um, don't feel bad about yourself. Maybe one of the worst things that you could, you could um, do to somebody is help them have low self-esteem. Be like, that'd be the worst thing. Did you hear what someone has? What, cancer? No. Low self-esteem. <gasps> oh, no. They may, they may implode. They may not function. I don't know what's going to happen. We need to hurry up and build up their self-esteem. And, and so in, in a culture where where it was shame-based and, and their honor was directly tied to who they were and what they chose to do, then it became a really important thing. And, and so Paul says, let them feel the weight of their sin. Why? Why would, he, why would he want to use shame? It's because he recognizes what the beauty of repentance does in bringing someone back into right relationship with God. But wouldn't it be better... Okay, just hypothetically, I think this is the way we think. Wouldn't it be better if, instead of shunning somebody, you just chose to stay committed to them, just walk alongside them, just love them through it, no matter what, love them, love them through it. And I think, I think we think that, um, that the only way to win someone over is to be nice to them. And it reminds me of, of a parable Jesus tells, and we, we, we did this in our, um, on a Sunday morning class, uh, this parable of where this king is throwing a banquet for his son who's getting married. He's throwing a wedding, and he invites the town people. And the town people don't just reject the king, which is a huge deal. You never reject a king's invitation to come to a wedding. The, the townspeople don't accept the, the king's invitation. And not only that, do they, but they beat up and they kill some of the messengers. So you know what the king doesn't do? 
He doesn't go back with nicer people. He doesn't say, hey, listen, the last group of messengers, they went in and they were a little too, I don't know, they were a little too harsh in their invitation. This time I want you to go back and be really, really nice about it. No. That's not what the king does. The king wipes out the people and then he invites other people. And then, and then other people that the king invites, um, one, one, of these, one of these individuals that, that comes, chooses to not accept the, um, the proper wedding garb that the king offered and came and said, no, nah, I'm going to kind of wear whatever I want to wear and, and came on his own terms. And the king says, kick him out. So, there, like this is Jesus telling a parable about the kingdom of God and, and at some level describing like there is, there is a point in which if when you reject God, whether it's outright rejection or whether it's just like, no, nah, I'm going to do it on my own, I'm going to do it my own way, God. It's, it's still rejection. And, and God doesn't like to be rejected. And so, when... When I think we think if if I'm just nice to somebody, they'll always they'll always submit to God, confess their sin, repent, and turn and and submit their lives to Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, that's not true. Like being nice to people is an important thing. I think we need to show respect. And I think we should always love and pursue. But I think this biblical idea of love is always grace and truth. It's not just always grace. It's, it's truth as well. It's truth and grace integrated together. It's this beautiful thing. And, um, and, and you'll, you'll, you will experience, if you haven't already, that, that no matter how nice you are, people sometimes don't want to submit to God. They don't want to turn and follow God. And so what do you do with, with people who continue to reject God and and turn their back on, on him, and therefore hurt, hurt you and and their relationship with you, their relationship with God. And so, w- when you think back to like the story of the Bible, and if you and if you know how God operates throughout the story, and how with His people He, He He establishes, He rescues them from Egypt. He establishes a relationship and a covenant with them. He gives them direction and guidance and, and a law and a way in which to stay right with Him. And then over and over and over, they, they, they worship other idols. They turn from their covenant to Him. They, they reject God. And He warns them and warns them and sends prophets after prophet to tell them, listen, if you keep turning from Me, I'm going to have to hand you over to your enemies so that you will finally wake up and turn back to Me. And after hundreds of years, he does that. He actually does what he says he's going to do. And so it, we, we've got to be okay with a God who is faithful to his word and says, listen, at some point, if you keep rejecting me, there's a point in which I will hand you over. And, and that's the God we serve. And, and, and sometimes I think we want to make God kind of who we want him to be. And, and so... Uh, I have a recent example of someone close to me and uh, in my family who uh, for 10 years has been kind of turning, turning their back on God and it's been painful to watch. 
it's been painful to to experience um, we've gone to to this person um, our family uh, over and over and over um, and they have not rejected in front of us but rejected behind us and in our and in and in that's in their life and it's been over and over and over to the point where we recently had to kind of draw a line and say okay we need to we need to establish some boundaries here because this isn't changing and so we establish a boundary and and what we got immediately was you're being judgmental um, the line was given to me told me told to me that hey doesn't the Bible say that you should love the sin but hate the sinner I mean sorry love the sinner but hate the sin anyway you know what I mean so, so that was thrown out, and I thought that was just an interesting, I was, I was actually kind of excited finally that the Bible was brought in. I was like, oh, good, we get, so we want to talk about the Bible. This is great. I want to talk about the Bible, but they didn't really want to talk about the Bible. Um, and I, I just think that's interesting, that, that when, see, right now you're not in that spot. Uh, my, my guess is you're not in the spot where you're the one that's turning from God and hardening your heart to God and rejecting those that are in your life who are trying to point you back to God. You're probably not there right now, so you can hear this. Um, but there may come a day when you are there. And I want you to remember that whenever we use lines like that, like, don't you, you should just love the sinner but hate the sin. I, as if the sin is just something out here floating that doesn't affect anyone. And you can love me, we'll, and together we'll just hate this sin. But what... Sin is actually is something that affects you and me. It hurts you and me, and it hurts me and God, and it hurts you and God. And so it's something that hurts. And so you would never say about, like, cancer or, or something else, you know what, let's just love the person, and we'll just hate cancer, but we'll not really do anything about it. We'll just, just let it take its course. We'll just it's act like it's not there. We'll just say we hate it, and we'll not do anything to fight it. We wouldn't do that. If, if something was hurting us, we would want to attack it and fix it. And, and so when it comes to sin, this is what God does. And He sets up a, a system where He values so greatly His relationship with you and, his, and your relationship with others that He's willing to say, listen, if you're going to continue to turn, continue to turn, there is a point. So... Um, and it's not just Paul that says these things. Jesus says them. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 18. I want to read these, read a couple things. Just to point you to what the Bible says about it. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, which is great. But if he does not listen, take one or two along, others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, so 
what he's what Jesus saying. Jesus, if you remember in in the Gospels, treated Gentiles and tax collectors actually very graciously. So he's not saying be mean to them. What he's saying is, if the, if they continue to choose to to not reconcile and to not um, repair this brokenness that's between you and your brother, and if they continue to turn from the Lord, then you should assume they don't want to be a part of you, that they don't want to be in your family, they don't want to be a part of your church, and so treat them in the way they're acting, in the way they're, they, they want. Those are Jesus' words. Um, and, and so, as I've been wrestling with this issue with a family member, I've really been wrestling with Jesus' words and, and what it means for us. And I can't help but think of, of this a particular situation where a, a husband, okay, I want you to imagine, this happens actually all the time, um, but a husband is having an affair on his wife in a different city when he travels. Okay? She finds out about it. He has been complaining about the marriage for years, and nothing has changed. And so he finds, decides to kind of seek someone else. And, and so the church confronts him about it, and he pushes him away. No, you don't understand how bad it is at home. You don't understand what she does. You don't understand how she treats me. You don't understand, right? And, and over and over and over. So one goes to him. Several go to him. They, they commit to meeting with him on a regular basis, checking in on him in every turn away. It's hard, hard, hard. And he's heading towards divorce. He's deciding he's going to divorce. Okay? So some of you have been through divorce. And you know that divorce equals pain. And you know that divorce like, can destroy lives like, and, and hurt people and cause issues that, that you'll deal with for the rest of your life. Um, I can't tell that story, but my wife has experienced this, and so she, like, I haven't experienced it. My parents are still together, and so I get to I get I get to see my wife process life now at forty years old, and how a decision that her mom, that her dad made when she was six still affects her today. And thinks that she thinks about on an almost daily basis. And so, now, in this particular case, the church said, "Okay, listen. If you're gonna if you're gonna continue with this, you're not welcome here, and we're gonna take care of your wife. We're gonna love and support her. We're gonna be here for her. But you've chosen to leave. You've chosen to. You don't respect us. You don't trust us. You don't want to be a part of us. So, you're not welcome here." In this particular case, about two months later, this particular person turns and, and reconciled with his wife, was, re, was reconnected to the church. And, and, and so think about their kids. Think about now they, the kids have mom and dad back together again. Right? And, and, and if you ask him why, he said, it, it, it hit me that I was losing like everything that meant to me. I was losing my family, I was losing my church, I was losing my friends. It's because this was a real story that happened at Sunnybrook just like three, four years ago. And, and if you ask him, he'll say, yeah, I realized I was losing everything because of my choices. I was pushing 
everyone away. And I was hurting everyone in, in the process. And you see, that is a beautiful example of why we have something like this that says, at some point, there's a line drawn. First uh, Corinthians 5 is a section that I won't read, but the whole chapter is pretty crazy. Um, dealing with a specific sexual sin in the church, and Paul's trying to address it and deal with it. And, and because sin hurts the church, and sin hurts people, and sin hurts a relationship with God. And so church discipline is always about repentance and restoration, and never about punishment. It's never, it's never been about punishment. When, whenever it's about, hey, you hurt me, so I'm going to do this to you, it's, that's, that's way beyond what God's ever intended. What God has always intended is for someone to be in right relationship with God who's, who's choosing to, to walk away, choosing to disobey God and turn their back on God. God is always wanting someone to be in right relationship. And so this confrontation needs to happen in order for someone to, to recognize they need to be in right relationship with God in order to restore a relationship here. And so uh, 2 Corinthians 5 is, is where I want you to turn next. Because I want you to, to see the full picture here. And then we'll be done. 2 Corinthians 5. Paul gives every follower of Jesus a ministry. That I believe all of us have. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on, on, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Like This is a ministry that God's given us. And what God wants is for people to be in right relationship with Him, to be reconciled with Him through Jesus. And, and when there's sin in between you and someone else, um, that sin needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be dealt with and there, in, in order for there to be reconciliation and restoration that takes place. And, and, and so repentance is needed for a person to say, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not acting in a way that God would want me to act. I need to change my mind and turn to Him. And only a church who loves you, I believe, only a church who loves you will confront you in your sin so that you can be restored in right relationship with God and in right relationship with others. So that's why I think church discipline is actually a good thing. It, it produces humble people who are, who are committed to each other and committed to God um, and, uh, and is desperately needed. And so, you know, as you guys are in college, and as you, I know it's difficult sometimes to commit to a body. I know a lot of you in here are, um, but 
But as you think about your life in the future, I, I pray that wherever you go, that you'll find a church that's willing to confront you, that loves you enough to say, hey, what you're doing is, is wrong. The way you're treating your wife or the way you're treating your husband is wrong. And, and we want to talk to you about it. We want to help you with it. We want, to, we want to see you get right with God. We want to see you be right with each other. I hope that you are willing to be a part of a place that's willing to confront you in it um, because it's a big deal. It's a big deal. So let me pray and we'll be done. God, thank you for your word and for loving us in the midst of our sin, in a way that doesn't just let us stay in it, but confronts us in it, it convicts us. I thank you for the conviction of the Spirit when we sin. as evidence of your faithfulness to us and your love for us, that you would rather us not continue down this path, but that we would turn to you and be um, restored in you. And I pray, God, that, that that we would commit to you in this room, that, that there would be a surrendering of our life to you, a recognition that, um, God, you made us and you, you know us better than we know ourselves and you want what's best for us. And so, God, help us to trust our lives to you, to surrender our lives to you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We got some food? Chicken nuggets. Chicken nuggets. Huh? Stick around. Love to have you hang out.